Friends, let's have a word of prayer and we'll get started with our study. Oh Lord God, you are the maker of heaven and earth. You are the one who always has been, always is, and always will be. You are the beginning and the end, the first and the last. You are the one in whom we live and move and have our being. You are the one whom we worship and praise, the one in whom we find our life, our meaning, our salvation, our hope, our joy. You are the one who has revealed yourself to us in your word, in your son, in the continuing life of your church and the presence of your spirit. So please come and be with us again this day and this moment in this place that we might know you and follow you. For the sake of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Genesis 15. Are you enjoying Genesis? Yes, good, good. Genesis, uh, we'll, we'll probably start saying this a little bit more towards the middle of the spring. Of course, Genesis is a big, long book, and sometimes it, uh, when you're studying a long book, um, you, you get tired of it, or you start saying, okay, well, I think I've got this, whatever. Um, and, and we'll address that question when we come to it, just in terms of the dynamics of, of Bible study. But it's long because there's lots of stuff to talk about, right? There's a lot of stuff in it. So again, let's put ourselves in the context of where we are today. We're in chapter 15 today, and we have already had the story about the creation of everything, the creation of humanity, how humanity messed everything up and got kicked out of the garden, and how God had to wipe the slate clean and the flood, and then how God began a very specific and particular work in the person and family of Abraham. And we're in the long story now of Abraham, what all's been going on with Abraham. Last week, we talked about the fact that Abraham lived in a period of history and in a place in history where there were frequent little wars. I'll call them little wars because based on the standards of today's war, those were fairly minor things. Today's wars involve usually a whole lot more people and a lot more destructive power, sadly. Uh, for the people of that day, they were not little wars. Um, the skirmishes that went on, the, the battles that went on between kingdoms and kings and economic powers and social and religious groups, usually fighting over the same things that people started fighting over and continue to fight over, territory, possessions, power, all that kind of stuff. That's what we looked at last week. And we saw specifically that Abraham was involved in some of those things. His family was involved because Lot got involved. But in all of that, uh, Abraham was successful. Abraham relied on God. God took care of Abraham and Abraham's family. And now we continue the story. It's important because we start off with these words from Genesis 15 after these things. And we have to remember what these things are. So let's read the first six verses together and talk about them a bit, and then we'll read the rest of the chapter. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham said, You have given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. 
No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and count the stars, if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Okay, there's 24 sermons in these six verses. And I'm going to preach them all to you right now. No. <laughs> After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram. We don't really know how much time has elapsed between the last episode in Abraham's life and this life. I think we can guess, to some extent, that quite a few years have gone by. Let's think about it. God comes to Abram, where he's minding his own business, living his own life, and says, I have a, a plan for your life. You're going to get up and move. Abraham does that, takes his whole family, gets up and goes to the region of what you and I would commonly call the Holy Land. They're there for a while, and there's a famine. So then they go into Egypt for a while. Then they come out of Egypt, and they're there for a while. It is very possible that 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years have elapsed in Abram's life since he first heard from God. How many of you have waited, we'll pick the number 20. How many of you have waited 20 years for something? What have you waited 20 years for? A grandchild. <laughs> Are you still waiting? Okay, good. <laughs> what have you waited 20 years for? To be out of a difficult situation. Enough said. I'll bet everybody here can relate to that. Yes, yes. And maybe everybody can relate to the grandchild thing, right? Yeah, yeah, cool. Someone else, one more answer. Well, yes. Oh, you waited 40 years to return to California from the Midwest. You sojourned in a foreign land. Wow. Your parents moved when you were 16, and then you got back here when you were 56? Okay. There we are. You had to wait. There we go. There we go. I'm sure we could go on with this, right? Abram has this promise, and he's been waiting for a long time. And what happens? God pops up again. Now, that's sort of the way it probably seemed to Abraham. That would surely be the way it seems to us, that every once in a while, God shows up. Now, that's the way it seems. That's not the way it is, though, because what do we believe about God? That God is everywhere all the time, okay? But it's also true in our experience, and, and I don't think God would argue with this, that we are unaware of God's presence with us. We are insensitive or we are too busy paying attention to other things, or in some ways, God just lets us go on even though He's there, and in our hearts and minds and faith, we can say He's there, but it doesn't feel like He's there. And so we have that experience. Abraham has that experience. God pops up. The word of the Lord comes to Abraham. One of the important affirmations of all the scriptures is that God does what God wants to do whenever God wants to do it, and we can't do anything about it. Does that make sense to you? Now, we can ask God to be present. Of course we do all the time. I just ask God to be here, fully aware that God is here, but also hoping that God would, in God's wisdom, in His mercy, decide to show up maybe in a little bit more obvious and apparent and perhaps therefore powerful way. 
So how many of you have had an experience of some sort of experiencing God's presence a little bit more acutely or powerfully than at other times in life? Have you had that experience? Okay, most folks have. Some folks never really do. That does not mean that God does not love them. doesn't mean that God isn't there. God does what God wants to do when God wants to do it, and we trust that God does it correctly, (laughs) and we certainly can't control it. But at any rate, God shows up. So the Scriptures affirm to us that God shows up always at the right time, even though we disagree with God's timing an awful lot. God shows up at the necessary time. God shows up, and the fact that God shows up at all is a miracle. And a very important thing to say about the character of God, because a lot of people in that day believed that the gods didn't show up, or that gods would show up at inconvenient, inopportune times, or that when they did show up, they were playing with us, like, like you know, little pets or something. God shows up. The word of the Lord comes to Abram in a vision. We could talk about, I'm going to have to revise my estimate. There's way more than 24 sermons here. Um, Visions, right? Visions. We have no clue from this text what that vision was like. But clearly, there was an experience that Abraham had that he talked about. Somebody reported it. And all of us understand that in the history of Christianity, maybe for our own experience, we've had moments of intense perception of what God is doing, right? And we don't have to go much further than that. Some people will want to take this in a sense, I I use the term literalistically, to say that, you know, well, what this says is that, that Abraham is standing there and God shows up in front of him kind of like kind of like Obi-Wan Kenobi, right? <laughs> I'm sorry, that's the first thing that comes to mind, you know, or or Princess Leia, you know, the hologram being projected out of R2D2 or something. Yeah. We don't have to go there. We don't have to go there. All we have to do is get in touch with the history the stories of people who have had an experience with God and, and relate that to our own stories. And, and that's all, that's all. <laughs> that's an awful lot that Genesis is saying. Abram has a vision, right? He hears, the word comes. Now, you've got two different words there. A word, what do you do with a word? A word is something you hear. You don't see a word. Maybe the vision was of a written word. We don't know. We don't need to press the language that far. Abraham has an experience that is unmistakable and overwhelming of the presence of God. And what is the first thing that God says to Abraham? Do not be afraid. I'm going to give you some homework. Go home, pull out a concordance. Do you know what a concordance is? Concordance is a is a catalog of the occurrence, depending on the, the, com, uh, the completeness of it. Complete concordances take every single word in some version, some translation of the scriptures, and you look up the word, the, or and, or God, or whatever, and it'll tell you every place it occurs. If you don't have a concordance, get one. You probably don't need one now because you have a concordance in your pocket right? And you forget to turn it off, and it goes off at inconvenience time. Just 
type in, do not be afraid in the Bible, and you'll get dozens and dozens, at least, of, of, of places where that happens. Where does it happen usually? When God shows up. God shows up to, well, let's pick something seasonal here, right? God shows up to Mary and says, do not be afraid, and then proceeds to tell her she's going to get pregnant. She needed to know <laughs> not to be afraid, <laughs> right? Why does God always say, don't be afraid when he shows up? Because we're afraid. <laughs> Duh! <laughs> Right? Because why are we afraid when God shows up? It's the unknown. Right? It's the unknown. It is something that is extraordinary, supernatural. It is outside of our experience. God is outside of us. He's outside of anything that we can, do you know the word apprehend? Anything that we can apprehend, anything that we can get our arms around. And, and when that happens, our first response is fear. Now, you can look at the fear in a couple of different ways. Let's look at fear in terms of the way we use that term, fear. We're afraid because we don't know what it is, and our natural human response is to step back because it might eat us. It might destroy us, and so we step back, right? Or maybe it is the fear of of reverence, of awe. You know about this, you know, the fear of the Lord, the reverence of the Lord, the awe of the Lord. Maybe it's both of those things put together. This is something really, really big. Do not be afraid. I can make the argument, you can too, that that's one of the most important phrases in all of Scripture. When God shows up and God is present with Abraham, God says, don't be afraid. You could go a long way just on that theological statement right there, couldn't you? Don't be afraid. Right now, you could give me a list of 82 things that you're afraid of. I can give you at least 83. I'm afraid of you all. Every time I come up and stand in front of you to talk, oh my heavens, what are we trying to do here? Don't be afraid. What does he say? I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now remember, Abraham has not heard from God in a long time. And the first thing God says is, I'm still here. I'm still your shield. Your reward shall be very great. A reward. What reward is God talking about? A son. Yes, a child. A child. You are going to get this child, Abraham. And then Abraham argues with God. <laughs> yeah, Abraham's a tough case. But Abram says, God, where have you been? What are you doing? What are you going to give me? You said I was going to have a kid. I haven't had a kid. I'm childless. The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Now, someone asked me yesterday, and I didn't have time to look it up uh, between yesterday and now, said, why would Lot, why would not Lot be Abraham's heir. He had a nephew, right? And I don't know the answer to that question, but clearly here, Abraham says, I don't have a kid. The, the person closest to me who's going to get everything that I have is, is a slave. That seems strange to us, doesn't it? Okay, we have to go back and understand how the world worked then. 
people are the same, but sometimes the world works differently in other places, right? If you move from one culture to another culture, you got to figure out the way the world works, okay? I just happen to, to look at somebody who comes from a part of the world where they drive on the wrong side of the road. It's, you know, <laughs> that just happens. <laughs> you know, there's no accounting for it, but it's just the way it is. So in the ancient world, slavery was a different thing than what we usually think of slavery as being. We think of slavery as being the kind of slavery that existed uh, in, in part of this country before the Civil War, blah, blah. I don't have to explain that anymore. But in that time period, in that part of the world, slavery was not the same thing. Oftentimes, slaves were people that uh, you took when you went and, and conquered another town or another kingdom. That's what we talked about last week, remember, right? You go take someplace and you take the people. They become your slaves, all right? It's not based on their race or their skin color or anything else. It's just based on, I won, you're my slave, okay? Um, slavery back then often uh, was actually not that bad a situation. Now, given the fact that you're not in ultimate control of your life, oftentimes slaves were um, put in charge of all kinds of things, and they, were, they became trusted friends. Uh, sometimes slaves could buy their way out of slavery, or sometimes after a period of service, uh, the person who, quote, owned that slave, if you will, um, uh, would, would simply let them go. And by the way, even the concept of ownership was different back then. In, in uh, American chattel slavery, it's called, the concept was that, that this person, we would call a person now, back then, uh, in parts of the, of, of the thinking of people, the person that you had enslaved was actually not a person, or they will, were just below being people. They were property, right? Just like your cow or your horse or your chickens. Um, and, and, but, but in the ancient world, that really wasn't the way slavery was looked at. It was more of a power situation. At any rate, we could talk a long time about that, but it was not at all unusual or un, uh, abnormal, and it would be very, very typical for Abraham as a childless person to say, this is the slave that I've come to know and love and trust, and that's who's going to get everything, Okay. So we shouldn't get stuck on that. That's who, my, that's who my heir is, is Eliezer of Damascus. Remember, the more important thing here is Abraham is arguing with God. You have given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. Abraham, describe Abraham's um, attitude at this point. He's like a mad teenager. Yeah, yeah. He's impatient. He's worried. He's normal. Who said normal? Good. Gold star. Yeah. Abraham is incredibly normal. The great heroes of the faith are just normal people like you and me. Okay? So he argues with God. But anytime you see the word but, if any of you are brand new to our studies here, brand new to studying with me, you will soon learn that the word but is one of the most important words in the Bible, as far as I'm concerned, because it means there's a shift in the argument. There's something else that's going to be said. It's going to be contradictory, usually. But the word of the Lord came to him, and in this argument, God says, No, Abraham, again I will say to you, 
what part of fill-in-the-blank didn't you hear? <laughs> this man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. Now, we already know how the story plays out, right? Later on, Abraham's going to try again to get an heir from someone who is his issue but not Sarah's issue, and that doesn't work out so well. We'll get to that story later. No one but your own heir shall be your issue. So God brings Abraham outside and says, look toward the heaven and count the stars if you're able to count them. Why does God do that? An illustration, okay? Very true, very true. Why else? There's lots of facets to this. Mm -hmm. He'll have a tremendous number of people that will flow forth from his family. Yes, that also is true. Why else? Yep, if God made all those stars in the universe, what makes you think, Abraham, that I can't give you a kid? Right? Absolutely true. All of that is true. I like to think, I like to put it this way, and this is in addition to what you have said, okay? God takes us out of our tiny little perspective, our tiny little lives, and opens up, up to something that is much bigger than we are. So much bigger that we cannot comprehend how big it actually is. And I think now, in some sense, that we can have a better understanding of how big everything is than Abraham could have. Okay? Now, Abraham could not even fly at that point. We can fly, right? We, we've, we've kind of progressed uh, in our ability to get up to those stars. Did you see the rocket launch yesterday? I guess it was like 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock in the morning back in Florida. It was about 11 here. We just happened to have BBC on, and all of a sudden they're saying, there's a rocket that's going to go. Oh, cool, right? Artemis, largest rocket that's ever been built. Uh, and I guess it's still up in the air. I haven't, I haven't heard otherwise. It's where? It's going to the moon, yeah. And then it's coming back, and eventually we're going to go. It, it's going to land outside of, outside of San Diego in the ocean. Oh, let's get a boat. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, how long, I, I don't know how long it'll take. Yeah, I just watched Apollo 13 the other day. That was, that was about, I, I don't know, random thoughts here, right? So God takes Abraham and says, look at those stars. You're going to have more kids than that. But God is also taking Abraham outside of his own limited understanding and perspective on everything, giving him a much, much bigger view. God does that with us sometimes. And we can choose to do that sometimes. How many of you, when you're maybe going through a really, really horrible time in life, just need to go sit on a mountaintop for a while or go sit by the ocean for a while? Do you know why you do that? I think there's lots of reasons that we do that, but one of the reasons is because we need to make ourselves really small again. And actually, the better way to say that is we need to remind ourselves of how small we actually are. And putting ourselves next to something really huge helps us remember how small we are. All of that stuff, I think, is going on here as God takes Abraham out to count the stars of the heaven. So shall your descendants be. And then here we come to one of the most influential 
verses in the Old Testament. Influential in the sense that people who met Jesus and were trying to figure out what Jesus was all about looked back here and they saw something very, very interesting. One of those people was Paul, formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. When he was trying to figure out what Jesus was all about, he was well-versed in the story of Abraham and he remembered this verse where God Abraham believes God, and the Lord reckons it to him as righteousness. Okay? That also became a very, very important verse for people like Martin Luther and John Calvin in the Reformation. Why? One of the fundamental questions that you and I have is how we can get back to the garden. And we think that we can get back to the garden if we can prove to God that we're worthy, that we're good enough, that we've learned our lesson. And so we try to prove to God that we're good people. We try to prove to God that we're righteous. We try to prove to God that, not that He made a mistake, but that we made a mistake, but it was only one mistake, and, and, and you can take us back now. We call that works righteousness, Right? But that the Bible will have none of that. The Bible will say to us that believing God is the basis of our righteousness. And it's not our believing, it's believing what we believe about God. Does that make sense to you? Who is God? What does God want with us? What does God want for us? How does God intend to deal with us? Either we messed up, and we better be, get our act together again, and we better pass the test, or we're toast, we're done, our existence is over. And then the question becomes, how good a grade do you have to get on your test? I was at DMV on Monday afternoon, and a younger woman uh, in, in the line next to me, in the, in the, the booth next to me, whatever, the, the agent, um, she walked up and he said, I'm sorry ma'am, you failed your test. I know. And then she started saying, how else can I take the test? When can I, you know, I hope she eventually passes the test, right? Our relationship with God depends first, foremost, first and last, beginning and end. It depends on who God is. First of all, God is grace. God is love. God is forgiveness. God loves us. I love God because God first loved me. That's what's being said here. Abraham believes God. He believes the promise. He believes that God intends good for him. He believes that God is trustworthy. He believes that God will bless him. All of those things. And that is what establishes Abraham's righteousness. Not his performance, but God's character, God's intention. And then, and then Abraham begins to act differently. And that and then is really important. If you believe something to be true, if you truly believe it, what do you do with it? You act on it. You act on it. Every single one of you demonstrated unquestioned faith today. 
You, did, you have demonstrated your belief today in this way. You came into this room and you sat down in a chair. Why? Because you believed the chair would hold you up. Have you ever approached a chair and looked at it and said, I don't trust it. Have you ever come up to a chair that you believed would hold you up and then you soon learned that your trust was misplaced? Right? Right? That's a very simple, simple description. If you believe something, you will act on it. Abraham believed God and it was that belief in who God was that established a relationship that made Abraham righteousness. And then out of Abraham's belief, as the result of his belief, the proof, if you will, of his belief. Here I'm invoking the letter to, uh, of James. Right? You say you believe in God, show me what you're doing that proves that belief. Abraham then acts in faith to follow God. That's a crucial thing. It's a crucial transaction to get the order of that absolutely right. First, it's God's grace, God's love, God's offer to you, God's gift of life, God's offer of new life, all of that stuff. Everything depends on God. And if you truly believe that, then your life will change. To the extent your life does not change, reveals the extent to which you have not quite yet fully believed. And none of us fully believes yet in that way. None of us is perfect, of course. We still hold on. This one phrase became so important because it, 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 it's possible. You know, we try, to, we try to figure out what went on in Paul's mind as he came to this understanding. Not just Paul, but others. Paul wrote about it, so he gets a lot of credit. What went on in the mind of the people who this finally sort of it dawned on them? And here, of course, also, and then I'll stop talking about this because we need to go on. Here also is a place where the gospel is expressed in the Old Testament, right? Most modern Western Christians think of the gospel as the story about Jesus, right? But the gospel is the story of God's love for us expressed in Jesus all through the Old Testament you have the same God and the same message about Jesus expressed before Jesus. And so here's where Abraham understands the gospel in that sense. Does that make sense to you? All that's pretty cool. I think that's really cool stuff. Let's keep on going. Let's see. I got to get there. Ah, verses 7 to 21. Oh, this one is fascinating. Ah. Then, I'm, I'm changing the, the, the names of the pronouns here just so we keep straight who's saying what and doing what. Then God said to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he, Abraham, said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? God said to Abraham, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Abraham brought God all these things and cut them in two, laying each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know this for certain. 
that your offspring shall be aliens in a land that is not theirs and shall be slaves there, and they shall be oppressed for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your ancestors in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Okay. This is really weird stuff in the way that we think about it, not in the way that they thought about it. We don't have time to finish, but we will. Here we have animal sacrifice, right? How many of you have ever taken a creature and cut it in half? Anybody here? Chickens, thank you very much. Absolutely. Fish, thank you very much. Anything bigger? Turkey, Turkey? okay. <laughs> there we go. Let's go for an ostrich. Let's see if we can get, <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. We live in a culture and an age where carving up animals is something, a, pe a lot of people don't even know that we carve up animals anymore, right? Uh, that was commonplace in that day. Otherwise, you wouldn't eat. So, number one, get over your modern Western sensibilities about blood and killing and, and carving up living creatures. Okay? Just, just don't even go there. Right? Because you need to get back to what this is that's really important. In the ancient world, people believed that life was a sacred thing even the life of another creature, because God had given that creature life. Taking that life was a big deal. Taking that life meant that you were going to have life, and taking that life ritually then, sacrificially, in the context of a religious expression, had all kinds of meaning to it. I sometimes think that everybody should be forced to sacrifice an animal at least once in their life, to try to get in touch with what that actually means, to actually see something die, to make something die, and to understand what comes out of that. Now, if you're getting all weirded out by this conversation, okay, there we are. But that's what's going on in the Scriptures here. The, the, the existence of animal sacrifice, a lot of people look at and, and, and then choose not to believe in God, <laughs> How could God say to people that they should cut animals in half? We don't understand. They don't understand, I don't think, what was going on. So, in the business of animal sacrifice, something precious was being given back to God. Something important was being said about the power of God over life. There are all kinds of things happening there. It's really, really important that you come to a deep understanding of what Old Testament animal sacrifice was about because you cannot fully comprehend 
what Jesus was doing on the cross, unless you understand that. The gift of life, the taking of life, the sacrifice of life, all of that. Now, we don't have time to, to explain that more fully or to, to describe that more fully. Let's just say that God, after God chooses to have this this incredibly powerful moment with Abraham in order to strengthen his faith when maybe he needed it strengthened in order to keep Abraham going. God says to Abraham, we're going to mark this experience. We're going to describe this experience with an animal sacrifice. And again, God gets to do what God wants to do. So Abraham sacrifices the animals And then God says some things to Abraham that reveal to Abraham how things are going to go in the future in some sense. I'll come back and talk about that in a moment. But then it turns night and what happens? What happens? A torch and a fire pot pass between the sacrificed animals, the halves of their bodies, except for the birds. Birds were too small for it to make much of a difference. I, I think that's what was going on. Maybe there was something else, right? Does Abraham take a torch and a fire pot? Not what we're told. It, we're just told that it happens. The implication is God makes it happen. God is present. Where else do you see God present in fire? The burning bush, the pillar of fire that led the Hebrew slaves by night and the pillar of cloud by day, God often appears in fire, if you will. So those two flames are, are meant to say God was there in the midst of that sacrifice, in the midst of what God calls a, a covenant. That word is important. I'm looking for where, oh, here we go. Verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. A covenant. The word covenant is hugely important in Scripture. I know I keep telling you, this is really big. That's really big. You know, are there small things? Yes, there are some small things. Not here. <laughs> God, God cuts a covenant. How, how many of you have used this phrase before? Um, I, I cut a deal the other day. How many of you have ever cut a deal? Have you used that phrase? Have you heard that phrase? Yeah, yeah. Do you know where that phrase comes from? Chapter 15 of Genesis. That's where it comes from. In the Old Testament, people began to talk about God cutting a covenant, or we're going to cut a covenant with God. The cutting refers to the sacrifice of the animals. They are cut in half. We say cut a deal now because God is making a deal with Abraham. We make a deal with other people. We cut a deal. That's where that comes from. There are 800 million ways in the English language that the Bible is referred to that nobody understands that it's originally from the Bible. This is one of those places. Okay, so God makes a deal with Abraham. What's the deal? The contract, the covenant. It's a one-sided contract. How many of you have ever had the experience of someone saying, I'm going to give you a brand new car? Period. Never happened to me, right? Usually that's, I'm going to give you a brand new car because you're my kid and I don't want to have to drive you around anymore or whatever, right? Most contracts, 
that are made in human experience. You can argue that all contracts made in human experience are conditional contracts. I will do this if you will do that. That's called a conditional contract. This is an unconditional contract. We tend to use the term covenant. Abraham doesn't, uh, God doesn't say to Abraham, if you will do A, B, C, D, and E, refer to Appendix X, then I will do this. This is not an if-then statement, a conditional statement. It's just God says, I'm going to do this. An unconditional covenant. Another way of expressing God's love for us that God had for us before us even existed. Pre, we call it prevenient grace. That's another way to talk about that, right? God cuts a covenant and He says, this, all this stuff is going to happen. You're going to have all this stuff. All that's going to happen. Now, as the story plays out, that is what actually happens. And so some people look at this and say, no, this is not the way it happened. How could Abraham have perceived this long history, this long, complicated, weird, crazy history? Nobody could have done that. Somebody went and wrote the story after it all happened. We have to admit that that is possible. I don't think it happened because I happen to think that God sometimes gives us visions of what's going to happen. I'm married to a person to whom that happens sometimes. You know, not you're going to go get this lottery ticket with these numbers. That, that vision hasn't happened yet. Dang it. <laughs> right? But, but a sense of what may be coming. Does that ever happen to you? Right? Right? I've learned over time that when my calendar shows two or three days that are empty, all that it means is that God is getting ready to fill them up with something. Usually something not very good. Somebody's getting ready to die, and I need to be available to them, and God has cleared my calendar. Sometimes it's good stuff. You were going to say something, Stephanie. It's going to happen... Um, it, you know, yeah, I, yeah. having been spent many years in labor and delivery, there's just this sense, and and you'll just walk into a room thinking, maybe there's something going on in here. You, yeah, they yeah. Didn't, they didn't call you. Yeah. But you just get that feeling. That As you a need nurse, to go yeah, check you have a premonition, to go check on them. Um, an intuition, yeah. a something. Right. Mm -hmm. I think all of those things are connected there. Yeah. We're going to bring this to a close pretty quickly. This whole piece. Of, of, of the story is about God in yet another way affirming and teaching to Abraham what's actually going on here with Abraham's life. And, and God takes it to a, a high-level conversation, so important that it's actually worth killing some animals over, sacrificing some animals. Now, again... We really need to study the rest of the Bible from here on out. So we're going to keep this, this study going for 66 more years. So we get the rest of the Bible in here. No, 65 more years after this year, right? Because we got to get to the sacrifice of Jesus. Something so important going on that something needs to be sacrificed. Okay. Uh, if you've got questions or stuff, bring them up to me afterwards. Is there something that if you don't say it right now to everybody, taking only 30 seconds to do it, you're going to explode. I don't want anybody to explode. Yes, ma'am. Let's get a microphone over here real quick. Would you say that this um, chapter 15 
is um, the whole underlying tension and plot line of um, the story of the Bible. Uh, in some ways it is, yes, yes. It's a reaffirmation of that, right? God has already said to Abraham, I want you to take your family and move and go to this place and I'm going to make of you a great nation. We have some more specificity here that we didn't have before. This is where the land is going to be. This is stuff that's going to go on. And of course, that is the, the big story of the Old Testament after, after we get everything created, right? You got to have that first. But then the, the, the big story, the unique story of the Old Testament is Abraham and his family and that everything that flows from out of that. So that's why this is so important for us to study. And so, yes, in a sense, it is the, the, the further description of that plot line. It's going to take hundreds of years to play itself out. Back to that patience thing, back to that perspective, big thing that's going on. So um, let me say this last thing, then we'll pray. Um, where is your life in all of this? Where's the big perspective that you need in all of this? Where are you impatient at arguing with God? Rightly so. I, I'm still arguing with God about several things, and so far I haven't won, but, but I'm going to keep arguing, right? Where do we need that? Because we're just normal human beings like Abraham. That's stuff you can take from out of this today. Think more about how you can do that. Let's pray. God, help us to look up at the stars and see you. Help us to look at each other's lives and even our own life and see where you are at work. Help us to be patient, to be faithful, to rely always on you because we don't need to be afraid. Amen. God bless you, my children.